Hi, this is me, and I'm talking to you. Things are happening. John sounds good. Marco, the fact that you're asking me if, I, if I'm still here is alarming, but I'm just going to keep talking until somebody starts to interrupt me and talks over me, which is pretty much the story of this entire show. Uh, Serenity Caldwell, friend of the show, has some iPad size comparisons, and so we'll put a few links in the show notes. Um, I briefly earlier tonight handled uh, my friend Steve's iPad uh, and was playing with his 10.5, and uh, it again seems nice. It doesn't really seem any different in size in the hand than the iPad I used to own, the the full size iPad. But uh, Serendi has some thoughts and uh, some comparisons and things. So, I don't know. John, you want to take us through this? Uh, I like the the diagrams. She originally tweeted them, when, uh, presumably, when she was writing the article. But those little, like, yellow rectangle diagrams, take a look at the one that shows the iPad body size comparison. Uh, you got, like, the mini is the little thing up in the corner. And then the 12.9-inch iPad Pro is the big thing. The difference between the 9.7 and the 10.5 is so tiny proportionally. That's why they feel almost the same, because they really almost are the same. And if you look at the screen difference between the 9.7 and 10.5, it's a little more uniform, where it's not like a, you know, it's it's more substantial looking. So uh, this is a great representation of how they've managed to put a bigger screen on an iPad that's not that much bigger, and why it doesn't feel monstrous, why it just feels like... You know, if you gave it to a regular person and they weren't intimately familiar with a 9.7, they might not even notice that the physical size of the thing is bigger. So I think that's a big selling point of this device. And if you had any doubts, uh, take a look at these diagrams. They're pretty convincing. Uh, speaking of Serenity Caldwell, um, she also has some information about typing to Siri in iOS 11. So in iOS 11... Uh, when it comes out in the fall, users will be able to turn on type to Siri in their accessibility settings, which will let you write your commands to Siri rather than shouting them into space, uh, which we had known about. But, uh, you know, she has a little bit more detail and I don't I can't decide if this is going to be awesome or kind of redundant and useless. I think it's nice to have that option because sometimes you either don't want to speak out loud, but you want to use the functionality provided by Siri, you know. Even if it's just, I don't know if this is the case, but imagine, for example, uh, that you routinely uh, ask to set a timer or a reminder in a spoken way, but you're not, you're not, you don't want to go through the the hassle of like launching the reminders app and then typing that same English sentence into the into the little reminder new reminder field. But you can do, you can say like, you know, pick up laundry at four p.m. tomorrow, and the reminder will like set itself to four p.m. tomorrow, and the name of the thing will be pick up laundry. But if you spend most of your time interacting with Siri, you may not know sort of the syntax that is understandable by reminders. And I don't think it's exactly the same syntax that that Siri understands. So it's nice to be able to essentially type into sort of a one one stop shop for all the things that you can make your phone do in a, in a vaguely unattended way and not have to say, oh, I'm in a place where I can't speak out loud. So rather than me trying to whisper to Siri, let me just type with my thumbs the thing I know will work with Siri in a nice quiet way because like all sane people you have key clicks turned off Uh, i don't know how people have key clicks on uh ryan jones made an interesting observation via twitter uh he said this is with regard to ios 11 on the iphone you can lock an iphone and i still haven't had a chance to play with this i want to see this but anyway he said you can lock an iphone by pulling down from the top And additionally, there's a software shutdown button in settings. This is still quoting Ryan. Very fishy. The power button may not be long for this world. So Ryan's point is, if you can lock your phone 
rather than with the button on the right-hand side on most phones these days, uh, but rather by just swiping down from the top. And if there's a software shutdown button, then what is the purpose of that right-hand button anymore? Obviously, to turn it on, but there's no reason you couldn't use one of the other buttons to do that. So does that mean the power button is going away in the future? And if so, what are we going to do about screenshots, man? I want my screenshots. <laughs> so I have an alternate theory on this one. I'm I'm thinking that, you know, the first of all, I really hope they don't get rid of the sleep-wake button. You know, it, it serves a, a very useful purpose, and while they might be able to come out with software workarounds, uh, I, I, I just... I like having that physical button there to control that very, very useful function of sleeping and waking yep. the phone. Um, and if they get rid of it, I assume they'll have some kind of like other way to sleep it or automatic. I, I don't know. Anyway, um, you know, there's also like different recovery things that this enables. Um, but the biggest thing that I think this might not be a big deal is maybe that button is that is being added to settings not because they're getting rid of the power button, but because they've learned that a lot of people don't know how to turn their phones off. Like the way you turn mm-hmm. your phone off is to hold this button down for a while. How many people know that? I bet a lot of people actually don't. I wish fewer people know uh, knew it. Um, I've having just taken a couple of plane flights and seen people on the plane, both seated next to me and in other seats, because you know, see them when I'm walking up and down the aisles to go to the bathroom or peeking through the edges of the seats. When I see people who own iOS devices, who turn them off like off off shut down completely when they're done using them and then boot them back up when they want to use them again multiple times during the flight i want to pull my hair out it's like just just don't just don't do it just hit like hit the power button or whatever just put it back in your bag and when you take it out later just hit any kind of button on and it will come back on instantly you can pick up where you left off and it will be fine but people want some people want to turn them off and you know how long they take to boot it's not a fast boot process i don't maddening so i don't think the i think you're right marco most people don't know how to turn off their phone i don't think people should know how to turn it like it's not it's not a thing that they should be doing routinely obviously if there's some kind of troubleshooting or you need to reboot it or whatever look it up online or you know you can figure it out or ask somebody or worst case go to the apple store and they will show you but it should not be a routine part of everybody's day so i don't want a way for people to better know how to shut down their phone. That's not that, that's not a good idea. All right. And additionally, Ryan noted that in iOS 11, there's a setting to, quote, offload, end quote, unused apps. So uh, there's a screenshot, offload unused apps, and then there's a uh, on-off switch. This will automatically remove unused apps, but keep its documents and data. Reinstalling the app will place back... That's an odd phrasing. Reinstalling the app will place back your data if the app is still available in the App Store, which is very interesting because a lot of us, and I'm sure I'm included in that as well, have a whole bunch of ancient apps in our phones that we think we'll need one day, but probably never will. So in settings in iTunes and App Stores in iOS 11 in the beta, there's offload unused apps, which is kind of cool and kind of interesting. There, this is an interesting problem that, that I think maybe Apple's trying to solve. Like, Gruber's been blogging a little bit about this recently, about how, like, the, the size of apps, just the sheer size of apps is just tremendous in, in the last couple of years. So many very common popular apps are, like, well over 100 megs. And that's, and, and you know, it's full of, like, bloat from frameworks and various assets and everything. And, and Apple has tried to, to do various things to reduce this, you know, the, the app thinning uh, group of initiatives and, and various technologies and things like that. But 
ultimately, if you think about like how much collective bandwidth and battery power are being used by the app store diligently auto-updating apps that people are not actually using ever on their phones. Like, it, there's you can definitely make a good argument for why not only should this feature exist, but it might even it, maybe it should even be defaulted to on um, because there is just a tremendous amount of data and battery being wasted to update like fifty hundred meg apps that on on people's phones that are buried in some folder somewhere that they're never actually using. So it is an interesting problem. I do think it is wise for apple to start tackling this somehow uh but we'll have to see i guess the implementation details of how this is actually done to, to know whether this is the right solution or not i don't think this should be on by default because the idea that your phone like rots like the, the like a couple <laughs> couple screens away the app that you only use once in a blue moon and the one time you want to use it it's like oh i don't have this app i have to redownload it and you have to wait for it and you're on a bad connection or it's a large app or something like that it doesn't strike me as a good idea i think a a nice comp- and here's the thing if someone someone's phone like fills up and they go to the apple store and like hey my my phone is filled up and which i bet is i bet is a genius bar thing they get a lot help me what do i do how do i make more space beyond my phone um aside from buying a new one and it's like well are there any apps you're not using let's sort them by size let's go to the usage screen and settings and see what's using most of your space and all those things that i'm sure the the genius bar people do all the time um one possible solution i found reasonably nice that is not the same as this preference that either you manually turn on or is on by default that slowly rots out the applications that you don't use and just deletes them out from under you and makes them like these little booby traps that cause big downloads when you tap on them is to do what slack does and say every once in a while and i know this sounds like nagging and skype does this uh this type of thing all the time but uh, i found it not to be particularly annoying it says on a fairly infrequent schedule hey uh I've noticed these three apps that are this big. You haven't used them in six months. Do you want to delete them? And you can say no. And you can say, don't bother me about this again. Or you can say yes. And that seems like, do that like once a month, right? And have that be a preference, but have it on by default or something. I bet people would go, oh, yeah, I forgot I installed that game. Delete. Or they'll say, you know, as long as you have the button that says no and never ask me about this again it will never ask you about that app again you know slack does this for tons of stuff hey these channels haven't had anyone talk to them in a while do you want to keep them or do you not want to keep them you know like maybe the slack frequency is a little bit more frequent i don't know what their frequency is but i find that a very useful you know if i was a marketing person i would say it's an intelligent assistant that (laughs) uses machine learning (laughs) to aid your but bottom line is it presents options uh in an understandable way uh without introducing any new mechanics in in gaming parlance like the mechanics are still you have apps you know you can delete them right you have you you can add apps and you can delete them every once in a while the thing will ask you you haven't used this do you want me to delete it as opposed to let me introduce the concept of offloading to you and now do you want me to do that automatically in a way you have no awareness of yes or no um so that i mean we'll see well i'll try it i will probably turn it on too because i have tons of apps that i don't use that frequently but i well maybe i won't turn it on because i don't want it to like offload my downloaded for the 24 hours they were up illegal nes emulator apps that i've had on my phone forever <laughs> like i don't want it to delete that stuff and and in typical apple fashion it's not as if i'll be able to exclude those or anything so i guess i will probably won't turn this on 
Yeah, I mean, I think it, it makes a lot of sense for people, of which there are many, um, who are really short on space in their phone pretty much all the time. And this is, you know, largely because Apple has for so long sold phones with really small storage sizes as the base model. And I think that's that's less of a problem with the recent phones, but there's still a lot of those out there. You know, a lot of those, like, 16-gig phones are still being used. And, and so there's this is a, a big problem for lots of people. Or people who, for any size phone their storage is full of like photos and videos and stuff and they don't want to or can't pay for additional iCloud storage and everything. So like, like they need the space. And so, you know, I, I think I, I would venture that venture a guess that space management is a really big, very common problem for iOS device owners. So anything to reduce space is a good thing, especially in this age where pretty much any app you download is going to be like 90 megs. All right. Uh, we have some observations from friend of the show, Steve Tron Smith, uh, iPad multitasking spaces persist after you reboot so they can be permanent, which just heightens my desire to be able to pin favorites. So apparently spaces are a thing and they're a persistent thing so that you can kind of set up your different, you know, uh, uh, multitasking panes and whatnot for different tasks and just swipe between them as necessary. Not unlike what you would do on the Mac. Yeah, pinning favorites, like, you know, the, the fact that it keeps track of what you did. Hey, you put messages on one side and, like, your text editor on the other, and you put Slack on one side and a web browser on the other, and, like, it, it keeps those as little spaces, and it keeps them together. And uh, it's good that it keeps track of them if it really does, because people, will, like as I've said a million times, people want to arrange their working environment in the way that suits them, but they will they will give up doing it if they spend any amount of time arranging and then that arrangement is forgotten. I've always, you know, use Springboard as the, my modern example to get people to understand spatial interfaces. If you picked up your phone and all of a sudden all your icons in Springboard were randomly arranged and everything was out of your folders and all scra- scrambled over, A, you'd be pissed. And B, after three times, you would stop rearranging stuff in Springboard. You'd be like, why bother? Why do I bother carefully making these screens? Because the next time I pick up my phone, chances are good that everything will just be randomly shuffled, right? That's That's how the finder is to me these days. But yeah, to get people to understand, like, why do you care? Why do you care about your screens? You hear all these podcasts, you know, Cortex talks about it all the time. I think they talked about it on Hello Internet. We've talked about it on here. Uh, talked about it on Connected Upgrade. Is there a tech show that hasn't talked about, hey, how do you arrange your home screen? The fact that that is a discussion topic at all is because you can arrange your home screen. You can arrange Springboard, and you put things in a place, and they stay there. And that's why it is a thing at all. Um, so with, with Spaces... Having them persist is great because that will let people start to get kind of an arrangement. And being able to pin favorites to say, like, I guess it sorts them in, like, the most recently used order or something. I don't know. I haven't tried it. But I'm assuming it's some kind of automatic order that says, all right, well, uh, when you go back to that switcher, the last two or three spaces you used will, you know, will be uh, in, in the first two or three positions and so on and so forth. If you could pin a small set of things to say, no matter what I do with my iPad, these spaces are always in this position that would also, I think, help people's workflows because they have kind of a way of working and a set of, of applications that they group together. And they're going to do other stuff. They're going to jump off to some other weird application, go over here, over there. But when they come back to the switcher, to be able to know when you invoke the switcher, to just stab in this position and it'll always be your Safari messages space or whatever. This is, you know, this is a tiny miniature version of, of uh window arrangement on, on uh, personal computers. But uh, as we've seen in personal computers, just too many damn windows for most people, and they uh, they they don't even if they use spaces like Casey does. Uh, I rarely see people who aren't pretty darn computer nerdy 
develop any kind of system with spaces just because it's so it's so difficult to do the same thing trying to do on the iPad to pin them to say this space should be here and it should be full screen and it should have this or this should have these three windows in it and it should never change. If you if you can do that on the iPad, if you can make more people be able to do that on the iPad, people will be a lot happier. Uh, people who could not accomplish the same task on a Mac. More from Steve Trouton-Smith. iOS 11 lets document-based apps pretty much present the file system as their launch UI, replacing all the galleries or grid views that everyone writes. So this is kind of cool that um, you can just use basically a file browser as the thing you land on when you launch an app. And so that makes a lot of you know, redundant code that all these different uh, companies and people have written just go away, which is really exciting. And this is more embracing of the iPad having a file system. I put this in here because I just immediately upon reading this tweet imagined uh, the very first application that tries to ship and do this, the App Store rejects and says, sorry, you can't show the file picker <laughs> as your launch UI. Doesn't that totally sound like an App Store type thing? Yep. I mean, he means technically speaking, yes, now there's like a canned Apple view that shows you the file system. And in a lot of applications, it makes sense where it, on Mac apps do it, where you, you launch uh, Office apps do it, and maybe even Pages. You launch and you get an open save dialog or you get... Well, I guess some of them do have those custom galleries, like choose from these templates and make a new document or whatever. Um, but in many types of applications, that is a natural way to do it. And I think most of the best iOS applications still would want to write their own, like Procreate or whatever, or like uh, Linea, however you pronounce the name of uh, the Icon Factory app. They all have kind of a view where it shows you, here's all your stuff. And especially if it's an image editing application, it shows you little thumbnails and stuff rather than showing you just a bunch of file icons. But if you really do have an application that mostly deals with just files that are not graphics files, um, it might make sense to launch into the Apple-provided picker, at least maybe in version one of your app before you, until you make the fancy version that shows you a preview like the Google Docs app shows you. It's just a bunch of text documents, but it shows you little previews of them, which is actually surprisingly useful. Um, so anyway, I'm, wa- I'm watching this to see the first person brave enough to ship an app like that to see if they get rejected. <laughs> it's not going to be a problem. <laughs> Apple, like, they, they're holding WBDC sessions about doing this. Like, they want people to do this. It's going to be fine. We'll see. Famous last words. No, if it's an NES emulator, you have a problem. Or do you remember way back when when there were tethering apps? Like, I think I had yeah, iTether that, or something yeah, like that. Yep. <laughs> and, and I kept that because it, it was on the App Store for like a week. And it was basically like you needed a, a component on your Mac and, a, and you needed the app on your phone. And I kept that thing on my phone for years because I had the AT&T Unlimited plan. And one of the ways they tried to, to shimmy you off of that plan was by never, ever, ever, or as far as I knew anyway, never allowing you to tether. So I had this like tether or I tether or something like that that I would use to be able to tether from time to time. And I remember I like had a saved version of the installer somewhere on my hard drive. So just in case the installer went away, I would still have it. I had the app that I like cherished more. I probably had a backup of the, a backup of the IPA somewhere just to be safe. I mean, I, oh my God. I remember that. Those were the days. And then there would be other apps, like a flashlight app that would, oh, by the way, have a Sox server on it. Yeah, know, right. <laughs> if yeah. you, you know, triple tap in the f- upper one third of the screen while holding your nose and bouncing on one foot, you right. would engage a Sox server. It was, yeah, like two hours oh, after man. that was discovered, it was off the store. <laughs> uh, moving on. The Apple Design Awards, the ADAs, they were a thing. Uh, we, which I think we spoke about last time, but it used to be that, uh, what was it? The Monday evening of, of WWDC, the first night of WWDC, they would have a, an event where the, 
uh, Apple Design Awards would get would be given out and and it would be done in front of an audience. Blah blah blah. This this past year they kind of did it quietly, but people got to schmooze with some of the execs, which is pretty cool. Well, Zach uh, Khan writes and says it's worth noting that Apple gave out ADAs to indie alternatives to mail notes and reminders but still won't let you set any of them as a default, which was a pretty observant thing that uh, that Zach had noticed. Yeah, they're rewarding, like, oh, these are well-designed applications, and they may well be, but I always feel for people who try to use the non-default applications because in each one of them, there's some aspect of it that is less privileged than, than the Apple one. Like for a mail application, it's, you know, it could be as simple as like when I click a mail-to link, when I tap a mail-to link on my phone, which application launches or when I tell Siri, remind me to blah, 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 where does it put that reminder? You know what I mean? Like, and they're so close. It's not, I don't, I don't even understand why I mean, Apple clearly wants to encourage notes and mail and reminder applications. Like they're a staple of the non-game section of the app store. Apple is not like, you know, growling at them and saying, why are those people trying to compete with our built-in applications? They want to encourage it. And here they are 88 winners. These are great examples of applications that Apple apparently wants to encourage. Let people use them as their default right for for all these calendar notes reminders mail they're so close and the limitations are less than they used to be it used to be much harder to use alternate applications uh but like why why not go all the way like every year we wait for this some years there is more to look forward to than others so we don't talk about it but because i don't think we mentioned this year but i'm always thinking about it hey when will i be able to use uh, alternate applications even on the mac back in the classic mac os days there was an entire control panel for you to set up this is the application I want to use for mail. This is the one I want to use for instant messages, so on and so forth. And that, that kind of is still in macOS if you know where to mess with things, but it's not prominent. Like some of the things are hidden. Like you go to the Safari preferences to, to pick your default browser and Chrome will constantly try to change your default browser. It's all weird UIs to the same underlying data store, but it's clearly not as prominent as it used to be. At least power users can figure it out. Uh, on iOS, it's, a lot of times it's just not possible, I suppose, unless you jailbreak, uh, which is frustrating, especially... We already talked about this with you know Siri and the increased number of intents. It would be great if they made intents for all the things that you can do with Siri for mail notes and reminders. If those things don't already exist, uh, I suppose they don't. Um, but certainly you can't tell. Uh, I mean, Google's applications do it. When you know when you'll tap a link in the Gmail app, it will throw a thing in your face that says, "Hey, do you want to open this link in Chrome?" Hint, 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 or Safari. And then there's a little <laughs> a little switch that says. Uh, ask me about this every time. So I always just hit Safari and hit the don't ask me about this every time and then and be done with it. But I feel like Apple can implement this well and it's not not rocket science. So again, maybe in a couple of years. Yeah, and actually for the record, I'm pretty sure they did add, they are adding it for notes in iOS 11. That's one of the two things that they added, um, I think. But if, if I get that wrong, I'm sorry. I'm still buried in WBC stuff because I learned that I have to rewrite my entire audio engine. You mean Wait, the... Uh, what? The... The, what do you call it? The uh, the intent you mean is in, in iOS 11, not that you can yeah. change your default application, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, the change in the defaults, I, I can't imagine. Uh, this, we'll see, I, I don't know. That's one of those things where, you know, every every WDC that comes around, we we get a whole bunch of stuff that that is, you know, no big surprise. And there's usually a couple of things that we always say, wow, we never thought Apple would do that. And so we, we've been for years saying we're pretty sure Apple's never going to allow you to change the default apps for these kinds of things. But in one of these years, it could be one of those things. <laughs> you know, they could just do it. And then we'd be like, oh, look at that. Cool. And we'd move on. Like, you know, the same thing with, like, deleting the built-in apps. Like, we never thought they would do that either. And there's, you know, all the little asterisks on how they kind of sort of 
offer it now, but you're just not really deleting it and things like that. But like, you know, they did it and they put the effort into that to make that happen. And so like, you know, as, as iOS gets more and more mature, many of the arguments against them offering defaults, like for instance, one of the arguments used to be like, well, things like mail, there are places all over the OS where they have like built in mail compose sheets. And yeah, that's true. But then they made extensions and they made Siri intents and things like that, which kind of break down these barriers and let anything plug in and kind of do similar things. So, you know, the, the, the idea of having custom integrations with certain things, like those are actually slowly being removed in favor of things like extensions and intents. And, and so it would not surprise me if they decided to actually let you change things like your default mail app and your default browser at some point in the future. I still wouldn't say it's likely, but the the I think the technical foundation is now there that they could do it if they wanted to without massive weird side effects. Um, I still don't think they will, but again, with Apple, you never really know what, you know, you never say they'll never do something. Well, they're so close <laughs> now, like you said, with the extensions. In, in each individual application, just take web browser or mail applications, for example, is all they would need to do for mail change, make a preference in Safari that controls where mail two links go to? Is that it? Like, what's left? Because you know, there's there's the extensions for like add this as a bookmark, or I mean, I suppose they also have uh, like tapping links in Safari search and uh, in, in Siri search results or something. You know what I mean? Or do you want me to open this web page and stuff like that? I don't know. It's probably weaved throughout the system in more places than I think. But it always seems like they're so close that like there's no. What what are they holding back for now? Because extensions really did blow it wild, wide open, and now almost all the things that you had previously done with a single default application, now you can pick from a list and you can rearrange that list, which, by the way, I really hope the rearranging of that list sticks better. Or I, ho- I hope these spaces stick better than the rearranging of that list because I've always had problems with that. Oh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it seems... It seems I, don't know, I don't know what the holdup is other than just, you know, a, not a big priority, and it's like one of those sort of small things that most people don't care about that they'll get to eventually. We are sponsored this week by Away. For $20 off your suitcase, visit awaytravel.com slash ATP and use promo code ATP during checkout. Away makes incredibly high-quality, thoughtfully designed suitcases for modern needs for the modern day and for modern airline sizes at incredibly good, high-value prices. So here's how they do this. Away uses premium German polycarbonate suitcase materials. So this is unrivaled in strength and impact resistance, and it's very lightweight because the last thing you need is a suitcase that starts out heavy before you put anything even in it. Uh, And the interior is incredibly thoughtfully designed. It has a patent-pending compression system, uh, and it has... Uh, a, a wonderful built-in laundry bag so that as your clothes get dirty during your trip, you can put them right in this laundry bag. And then when you get home, you can detach it and drop it right in the wash. It's great. Uh, there's a TSA-approved combination lock to help prevent theft. They have four 360-degree spinner wheels. Now, this is if you've only ever used two-wheeled suitcases, four-wheelers are a whole different experience, especially if you have a heavy bag. It's way easier to roll through an airport on all four wheels. You just hold the handle up top. It's super easy. And one of the coolest features about the Away suitcase line is that their carry-on model has a built-in USB charging battery. So if you want, you can charge up your suitcase before a trip, and then throughout, as you're going through different airports, maybe waiting for a layover, you can plug in your phone right to your suitcase, and you can charge up your phone. It can charge an iPhone five times with the built-in battery capacity and there's a lifetime warranty and all this so if anything ever goes wrong with your away suitcase they will fix or replace it for you for life 
And you can see for yourself with a 100-day trial, here's how this works. You can buy any OA suitcase, and you can just actually use it. You can travel with it for up to 100 days. And if at any point you decide it's not for you, you can return it for a full refund with no questions asked. So you can literally buy it for a trip, take on a trip, get it beaten up by the airline, and then if you decide it's not for you, they will take it back, no questions asked. And there's free shipping with any away order within the lower 48 U.S. states. Go to awaytravel.com slash ATP, and if you use promo code ATP during checkout, you'll get $20 off your suitcase. Once again, awaytravel.com slash ATP, and use promo code ATP at checkout for $20 towards any suitcase. Thank you very much to Away for sponsoring our show. All right, speaking of photos a moment ago, let's talk about, what is it, Heath or Hafe? I always get it wrong. The Apple people have been saying Heath. Heath, okay. All right, so uh, somebody in the show notes, I'm assuming John, says that Heath is good. Heath is good. Heath is, like, a... Those are some of my favorite sessions, the the Heath HEVC sessions. If you want to uh, take a look at some sessions, uh, uh, tech nerdy stuff at WWC, I think these are some of the best ones for a bunch of reasons. So the first is that Heath is good. Uh, it is better than J- JPEG. It's better than Ping. It's better than all the existing formats in terms in the in terms of the things that Apple cares about and that you should care about too. Image size, flexibility of the format. It's kind of, it kind of reminds me of like. The various, I'm not going to call them pirate formats, but like the Matroshka or whatever, MKV mm-hmm. container mm-hmm. thing, like where they just say, here is a really super generic container that can, you know, that is flexible and straightforward and fits a whole bunch of stuff in it. Uh, and look at all these things that it can do. And we don't pin it down with these arbitrary limitations that, you know, make sense at the time. And one of the examples in the thing was like, whatever the maximum size of a JPEG is, I forget what it is, but I'm sure it seemed ridiculous when JPEG was created in whatever 1980 or 90 something or, uh, and, and yet here we are today. And it's like, actually it's an actual legit limitation that, that is problematic for JPEGs. One of the demos they had, and not to spoil it too much, one of the demo, demos they had of Heath was of a panorama that they zoomed in on and they just kept zooming and zooming and zooming. And it was this ridiculously large panorama. And it was like, is this, is this some cool new application like Google earth that just reloads new tiles and, you know, uh, like totally custom UI. No, they were just zooming a Heath image, which itself internally can use a tile-based format and its resolution can be massive and you literally couldn't do it with JPEG. Like all it was was an image view as far as I could tell, but you couldn't do it with JPEG because JPEG can't support an image that size, period, right? Never mind the efficiency of being able to quickly read and display just the portion that it's on the screen with the whole tiling stuff. The pictures are smaller for the same quality, or better quality for larger sizes. And they can contain lots of different things. Like, it's almost like Heath was made for live photos. I bet it was kind of the reverse. But uh, And it's a shame that live photos came before Heath. But, hey, you can store a series of photos, photos plus video at the same time, with, you know, smart diffs between the frames of the stuff in them, is what I was talking about in the, in the live show, where I was speculating that perhaps uh, that every frame of a live photo stored in Heath format is of equal quality. That's why you can pick among them. Reportedly, that's not the case. We got at least one report that if you pick the real photo, it is still like, you know, the still photo is still higher quality than any of the animation frames, but maybe the animation frames are higher quality than they were. I suppose it makes sense that if you had to shave full quality for every single frame, you'd take up a lot of uh, of, of memory because those are actually pretty big. Maybe you couldn't even dump them off the sensor that fast, but even if it could, you probably wouldn't want them to because it's kind of inefficient even with interframe diffs. But anyway... Um, the reason Heath and HEVC are big deals is because, aside from them just being new formats um, and better, 
is that this is like a foundational technology. Like they didn't really hammer on it too much, but this is going to last if, you know, if, if, if all goes well, this is going to last 10, 15, 20 years. It's going to define your experience on iOS and Mac in terms of what are my images? What is my video made of? How good does it look and how much room does it take? It is so fundamental to every single thing that we do, especially with cameras being as pervasive as they are today, that any kind of change in them is like, you don't change it for the hell of it. Oh, this year we use a totally different image format. Next year, there's a different image format. No, we pick an image format. We stick with it for a long time. And these formats are just better. They're just better. And this will, this will change all of our computing's lives in, in like boring ways. Uh, and we'll continue to change them for years and years and years. Like, I don't, I don't think this is like a weird fad type thing. And I, I really hope it really does catch on and, and sweep across the entire industry because I'm ready to get rid of those old formats and change to this new one. Like, why, why hold on to a format that makes larger files that are worse quality, that has less flexibility and is more difficult to, to deal with? Uh, so I encourage everyone to look at these sessions. I think this is exactly the type of sort of underlying core technology that's certainly within the Apple ecosystem and hopefully within the ecosystem across the whole industry because I hate it when... Apple does something better and no one else copies it. And again, HEAF and HEVC are not Apple standards. These are ISO standards, international standards. Apple, I don't know if Apple had any influence at all in making them, who knows. But either way, they're not Apple proprietary. So I really want the whole world to move to this. Every time I think about the whole world moving to it, I think back on GIF. And then I think, we, could, we couldn't even escape GIF. How, are we really going to all change? Are we all going to change to HEAF and HEVC? How long did it take to get transparent ping support in all of our browsers? I'm old, I know. Uh, but I, my fingers are crossed for these standards. All right. Let's see what else we've got going on. Uh, I didn't entirely understand this tweet from not underscore David Smith from, from Apple employee, David Smith. He'd said, uh, that 32 bit support is sunset in Mac OS. This is a bigger deal than it seems. I three eighty six is the last Fragile hyphen obsi hyphen ABI non-Swift supporting architecture. I understood bits and pieces of that. Can one of you translate for me what the crap that actually means? It says it in the notes right below it. So the uh, the fragile Objective C API. So the the fragile Objective C API is where, uh, well, it's it's the non-fragile one is where it escapes the fragile base class problem, which is basically if, if Apple ships a framework and they have a class and it has like fields, name and age in it, right? And people build applications on top of that framework and they ship them. And then the next version of the operating system, Apple wants to add a hair color field to that same class, right? The fragile base class problem is like, oh, we can't add hair color fields to this class because a bunch of applications are shipped that are compiled against the old version that just has name and age. And so the only way we can add a field because of the fragile base class problem is all those people need to recompile their application against the new version of the framework that has this new field, right? And so the Apple fixed this, I think, maybe in the, in the upgrade to 64-bit uh, runtime. Um, and it's not a problem now, but it is still a problem in the 32-bit Objective-C uh, ABI. So they didn't bother fixing it there because you know backward compatibility and also because i assume they be moving away from 32-bit eventually and now they are and so this is that problem goes away entirely like then everything that they have certainly swift and also well swift eventually when they get a stable api but i'm, I'm sure i'm assuming they will uh, do the same thing there and all the 64-bit objectives they don't have this problem so they're leaving behind a, a limitation and also uh 32-bit uh doesn't support swift so it's 64-bit only so that's another reason to ditch it. So, yeah, 32-bit Mac, not long for this world. And someone asked me on Twitter recently, why do I care as a user 
whether uh, aside from a bunch of my applications potentially breaking, what benefit is there is there to me as a user for Apple ditching 32 bit support? I don't care if it's a problem for Apple and they have this fragile, you know, uh, base class problem and they can't up, update frameworks. Blah blah. Who cares? I'm I'm not a developer. I'm just a user. I don't want a bunch of my applications to go away. Why do I care? Um, the main reason, especially on phones, is once you load a 32 bit application that loads 32 bit libraries. Uh, those take up memory and it's better to just have the 64-bit ones in, in memory instead of having you know you'd have seven 64-bit applications all sharing a single you know shared memory instance of a library and then you launch one 32-bit application and it has to bring in the 32-bit version of that library just for that application um so you know it your your phone will use less memory doing the same things uh in theory uh and then the other one is just you know simplification if apple doesn't have to support this old runtime they can you know it it's a simpler operating system to not have to support this old stuff. And anytime you can delete code and not include things and just, you know, it simplifies everything. So presumably that will make your phone more stable and faster and your applications more stable and faster and yada, yada, yada. So the benefit to the user is kind of esoteric and maybe not that particularly visible, but this is what we call progress. You can't support 32-bit forever. More on Hi Sierra. Uh, the High Sierra format is the early logical <laughs> file system. I love that we're actually following up on this. this used is the, the for joke, CD-ROMs. The joke that John made during the live show. Was about, it a joke? It was a memory. It, yeah, oh. about High Sierra being like a CD-ROM format name. <laughs> yeah, just to say that High Sierra is not a com- two words that have been combined just by Apple for the purpose of the operating system, that it is in fact a thing. Not just, you know, that this this volume format... Uh, logical file system used for CD-ROMs in 1985, 1986, right? They named it after High Sierra. Like, they didn't also make up that term. So I'm just defending the High Sierra name. Put a link in Which the show notes to the, the Wikipedia article on the topic. Oh, that's really old. Yeah, that's this is because yeah, it's before the ISO 9660. That's the one that most CD-ROMs were, right? Mm-hmm. Remember the uh, the Mount Rainier packet writing standard that was trying like for did you guys ever get packet writing CDRs to actually like work and not be a problem for something? Yep, I did. Because I got like the, I got the super expensive fancy one that all the magazines said would work, and it really did. You could incrementally add data to CDs. It was amazing technology. That was so like the the whole thing like, in CDRWs too. How incredibly slow and unreliable they were. Like th- there were so many efforts put into trying to make CD burners behave more like floppies, so that you could just like write part of one and then add some files to it later. And then maybe delete some files, which wouldn't actually really delete them, but would just like mark that block as deleted and just add some more to the end. And there were all these different standards of doing it, and they tried to define like industry standards to, to combine them all. And it, it was always a just giant buggy mess. And maybe maybe this is one of those things that like you Mac people, John, like it, maybe it was perfect for you, <laughs> and it was just crap on the PC side. But I can tell you one thing: it was really crap on the PC side. And my first CD burner, which was a SCSI four by two by six yep. from Yamaha, mm-hmm. which was awesome. Uh, we might have had the same one, probably. <laughs> that was like it, it was so good at everything else, but you try to get any of those packet writing things to work and it, it just like no other computer could ever read them you were lucky if your computer could read it tomorrow like it was just mm-hmm. terrible <laughs> i was gonna say the reason you had all those problems is you're using crappy ide cd round drives but using scuzzy ones too and you nope. know was a pretty reputable reputable vendor yeah all of mine were obviously scuzzy and yeah, mine were super expensive top of the line yamaha things with uh fancy back applications i had pretty good luck with it I did, I did it all the time that was my form of backups back before i had enough money 
to have you know duplicate uh, hard drive space. Because yeah, hard drives were still quite expensive back then. No, I mean CD like having the first CD burners, it was awesome. Like, and it was oh, amazing yeah. being able to make your own mix CDs. But like everything that tried to make it more like a floppy or a hard drive just always sucked. It had so many problems. Before we leave this topic, I will say one of my favorite pieces of esoteric optical disc technology I ever owned was I had one of the Kenwood Truex CD-ROM drives that read at 72x by by splitting the laser into seven different beams and reading seven tracks in parallel. That's different. That sounds super reliable, and I'm sure it was very quiet when it's spinning at 72x. <laughs> no, because it because it was I think it was only spinning at like 12x, oh, and yeah, that's yeah, so yeah. it was way better than like the than the the, the 52x CD-ROMs of the time that <laughs> yeah. it sounded like a four-stage jet engine that mm-hmm. spin up one stage and vroom, like it really super loud. Like, <laughs> it was waiting mm-hmm. for the uh, disc to shatter apart like a wheel that's going too yes, fast. which they occasionally did. And I always, I was always kind of surprised with the 52X CD-ROMs that, that sounded so crazy. It was kind of surprising how few discs shattered inside. Like they actually worked most of the time and they really shouldn't have. Yeah, I, I always got nervous putting the sticky labels. You ever do that? The sticky labels on oh, top yeah. of oh, your, yeah. uh, your oh, things, right? Yeah. You, you have to put them on perfectly because it's like having an unbalanced tire. Yep. Right? You get it in there yep. and the label is a little <laughs> bit off. I remember all of that. I remember when we had one of our earlier PCs that had an external CD-ROM drive that was, uh, it had like a little tray or cartridge that you would put the CD in. Yeah, the caddy. Uh, Yes, I couldn't think of the word. I knew it wasn't cartridge, but I couldn't think of the right word. Yeah, it had a CD caddy. I remember that. I remember getting the CD burner early on. So this was high school for me. And I remember I was very popular amongst the high school kids because I could like make a mix CD, just like you said. And I also mm-hmm. remember, and Marco, you particularly will appreciate this. I uh, got into, briefly got into trading tapes in the Dave Matthews Band taping community because Dave Matthews fan, Band, as we all agree, is a jam band. And so I, mm. my first couple of trades, what I had done was I had said, hey, send me cassettes of what you've got. And since I have nothing to trade, I have no concerts of my own, I will digitize them, put them on CD and send them back to you. And that's how I scored my first couple of uh, concerts. And these were concerts that I had been at. Um, And these concerts were very different from each other because, as we said, Dave Matthews Band is a jam band. Anyway, we should move on and talk about APFS. (laughs) Uh, APFS is good as well, as it turns out. And uh, yeah, apparently. And, you know, I know, John, you don't have many words to say about this. So, Marco, would you like to take over? Yeah, sure. Um, it's a file system, and it's new, and it's not HFS Plus, and uh, so therefore it's good. Let's move on. Moving did on. We, I, I, seriously, did we? Did I talk about all these things on a past show already? I don't think you did. I'm not 100% sure, but I don't think you did. I, I'm not done. I, in a rare case of me not finishing the previous episode, I'm, I have like 40 minutes left on last week's episode because we're recording this early. Slacker. Uh, did I talk about all this already? <laughs> Just it, it's you know it's fine. The people love you, John. If if they want, they can skip to the next chapter. That's what it's there for. I will add a caveat. I may have talked about all the, everything I'm about to say in a past episode. If I did, I apologize. Uh, or but just pretend I'm like a teacher and telling you things multiple times to make you retain it more. Um, <laughs> so, APFS APFS is good. I learned some things about it in the APFS session that I may have talked about last week. Um, it will convert your encrypted drive. So if you have file vault on, you don't have to worry about, oh, it won't be able to convert by thing because it, it, it understands the file vault encryption and it will do all the things it has to do. So you won't lose any data and you won't lose any encryption. It will convert your fusion drives. And when it converts them, it will improve your fusion drives. 
because ABFS, unlike HRS Plus, will guarantee that the metadata all stays on the SSD. Like, that's where it writes the new APFS metadata, and it keeps it all there. So uh, aside from the Fusion Drive saying, you know, moving the actual data, like, oh, the files you access frequently will move to the fast storage and leave the files you access less frequently on the slow storage, you know, that's how Fusion Drive works. Uh, APFS will make sure that all of the metadata, all the information about the files, all the file names, their sizes, their dates, where all the little data blocks are, all that will stay on the SSD always, which will make things a lot faster because reading metadata is, you know, it involves a lot of seeks and a lot of small reads, and it's great to have them all on the SSD. Uh, disk Utility, the new version of Disk Utility, uh, which I don't know if it has a resizable window and resizable columns yet. I haven't checked, but that would be a great feature. Anyway, it will convert your volumes. So you can open Disk Utility and point at any HFS Plus disk and say, please change this to APFS. It will not currently make them bootable. I'm assuming they're going to fix that. If you want to make it bootable, you have to run the installer, the uh, the High Sierra installer, to make it bootable. But again, I'm assuming that'll be fixed. Um, mobile Time Machine, a thing that most people don't know exists but does. Uh, I think it still only runs on laptops. Like uh, If you're on your Mac laptop and you're not connected through a time capsule wirelessly or any other time machine interface, like you, know, it's, you have Time Machine on, but as far as you can tell, like your backup drives are not, you're not communicating with your backup drives. Like say you're on an airplane or something and you're editing a document. Uh, many years ago, Apple added a thing that still backs up using Time Machine to your own disk. Uh, it's not going to protect you if your hard drive dies because you're backing up your disk to your disk. But it's supposed to save you like if you're editing something and then a while later you accidentally delete it and you're like, oh, I want that back. I'm on a plane and it was my important presentation. Well, Mobile Time Machine had been in the background making copies of your stuff to this other location on your disk, and you can invoke Time Machine on an airplane with no Wi-Fi and get back old versions of your document. Um, there are some caveats to that, which I'll get to in a second, but the APFS story here is that uh, because APFS has constant time snapshots where they can take a consistent snapshot of your disk in a small and fixed amount of time like it doesn't depend on how much has changed since the last time or anything like that it is just mark this as a as a, a consistent state and and it takes space on your disk obviously and retain that but it can do it very quickly and very efficiently which means the previous implementation of mobile time machine which is fairly intense like it was a, mounting a virtual file system in a secret corner of your drive and then writing to it as if it was another volume but it's not like it was really weird and involving hidden directories and fakery making it look like you have a second volume inside your first volume and it would have to like crawl over all your files and find the ones that have changed and make copies of them to this virtual file system very very slow whereas the apfs one is just snapshot and it's like literally a couple seconds doesn't matter how much stuff you've done since last time you did that the snapshot itself it takes constant time um you can do it yourself with a command line, tmutil, the time machine command line utility, which is useful, by the way, on any Mac. If you've never just type man tmutil to see all the different things, you can delete old backups and mess with your backups and, you know, screw yourself if you're not careful. But anyway, it's uh, it's a neat utility. New command, tmutil space snapshot. We'll take a snapshot. You can If you have high CR beta, run it now. You'll be amazed at how quickly it runs. The thing that bothers me about mobile time machine, and I can kind of understand why Apple's doing this, but it's still a little bit uh, of a bother, is it runs hourly. And so for you, like working on a presentation and you hose it in some way, you want the backup, you can get the one from an hour ago. But if you just created this thing within the current hour, there are no backups of it. It's like, oh, hourly, that's not good. Why don't you take, you know, I wish I wish I had backups every five minutes or 10 minutes. Well, remember, all these snapshots take up space because it basically says everything that's on your disk right now, save it. And so if you delete a bunch of files, 
they're still taking up space in the snapshot, right? Um, so I understand why they don't want to do like a snapshot every five minutes because you'll fill your disk with snapshots, even if they trim them off the end. So hourly is probably a reasonable compromise. Uh, but, you know, the, I, I mentioned TMUtil snapshot. It's like, well, if you're paranoid, you can set up a cron job that runs TMUtil snapshot every five minutes while you're on the flight and you'll be saved that pain. Just remember to turn it off later. Otherwise, you're going to fill your disk. Um, but the important thing is those snapshots happen really, really quickly. And it's got to be way more reliable and efficient than all the weird stuff that was going on before. So this is a nice upgrade for Mobile Time Machine. We mentioned a couple of shows ago, hey, when will Apple release the version of macOS that uses AVFS to make Time Machine better? This isn't that because it's only for local backups, but I assume in a future version of the Mac operating system, uh, assuming Apple continues along this road, that... I guess you call it remote time machine, you know, actual time machine backups to a different volume, hopefully on a different disk, uh, will use the the smarts of APFS to do something intelligent. I think they might be using it now to just take the snapshot and read from that snapshot to send to the remote disk, but it's not quite the same thing as you can imagine, like smart deltas or, or what's changed. I'm, I'm not quite sure what they can do. They can't do the same things as ZFS where you get like block diffs and stuff like that, which is really cool, but they didn't go with ZFS. They went with APFS, so we got what we got. But anyway, I feel like they can make strides there as well we are sponsored this week by hover go to hover.com slash transfer my domain to get a 40 percent discount right now on transferring any domains into hover now how happy are you with your domain name registrar chances are i've been with a lot of domain name registrars before and i cannot tell you i was very happy with pretty much any of them and I've been happy at Hover. I've been using them for a few years now, a long, long time actually, and and I really am very happy there. And I don't, you know what? When I transfer stuff into Hover, I never transfer it out because Hover the the customer service is so much better. The interface is so much better. What you get for free is amazing. You have free Who is privacy, no additional charge for that. Uh, you have lots of wonderful mail services that are either free or very low cost. You get best-in-class support. You can f- call them on the phone if you want to, if you have any problems. They w- they can walk through transfers for you. They have a valet transfer service. They will actually, if you want to give them your uh, login to your old domain name registrar, they will actually transfer for you if you want. Um, it is really an incredible company. They have great service great support, a great interface for managing all your domain names, and great prices. And so much stuff comes built in for free, like that Who is Privacy feature. Nobody should ever charge extra for that, and Hover doesn't. What they're doing now, they want everyone to see how great Hover is. So they're running this promotion during the month of June. So you got to kind of hurry up. But during the month of June, if you go to hover.com slash transfer my domain, they will import, if you, if you transfer to them, you will get a 40% discount on the registration fees. And so this is this gives you 40% off the additional year cost. So when you transfer domain, you don't lose whatever time you have already registered. That just gets added on to. So you can actually get a 40% discount on the next year registration fee by transferring it to Hover during the month of June. So hurry up, transfer to Hover today at hover.com slash transfer my domain. If you have any other time left, don't worry about it. It will add on to your registration at 40% off the regular price. This is a great deal. I highly suggest you check out Hover today. Hover.com slash transfer my domain. Join Hover today and see what all the fuss is about. Thank you so much to Hover for sponsoring our show. (sighs) Can we please do a topic? (laughs) No, we have two, three pages of follow-up left to do. This this feels like we need to declare like a follow-up barrier. 
and just <laughs> we, like, we can I, go through we can go through them quickly. Oh, okay. Start the cl- oh challenge accepted. Start the clock. All right, here we go. You two ready? Buckle up. Matt Bidolf writes iMac Pro's price comparisons. PC Gamer had a hand-built PC from parts that mach- that matches the iMac Pro in spec. It cost four thousand six hundred eighty-six dollars versus Apple's four thousand nine hundred ninety-nine. Billy Flattery writes iMac model price comparisons. Just notice no, the that's not how you do. End- you can't just read the follow-up items. That's not how you go through quickly. You have to have have to have commentary from. Every- Everybody on each item, we just have abbreviated commentary. Yeah, Mac opening price is fine. Bill Flaherty, go ahead. Bill Fl- no, 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 no. <laughs> you have to have discussion. Marco, we tried. It's not just a race to read things. This is what we people tried tune so in hard. For. This is the show. So you think just reading quickly is how you get through it quickly. How you get through it quickly is by not having extended conversations, by saying... One or two. No, well, how we get through it quickly is by not breathing when I'm reading it all. That's how we get through it quickly. I'm gonna, I'm gonna build some gills and give them to myself. That's how I, I, get I will it show you time. if you'd like me to do the next one. I can do. It. Anyway, I'm I would pro love price it. comparison. Uh, the thing I want to point out here is anytime there's price comparisons from you know one computer, you know the, the iMac Pro versus some PC that you build, they're like, hey, if you match the the, the specs of the iMac Pro, you end up with a pretty expensive PC too. Uh, the obvious little asterisks that's on all these stories is no sane person would build a pc like the imac pro because most people who need like say a really big gpu for gaming aren't going to put a xeon in it and they're not going to have ecc ram and they're not going to have this really expensive 5k display um so even though this price comparison is right nobody no no pc builder would build a pc like the imac pro uh, for most of the things that pe- people build PCs for, because they would tailor build it. It wouldn't be the most expensive, best everything you can put in a computer. They would decide, I care about, you know, do I care about ECC? Do I care about the CPU? Do I care about the 5K screen? And they would end up with a less expensive machine. That's all I wanted to say on that. So Billy Flaherty said, <laughs> uh, he points out that between the mid and high end IMAX, not the IMAX Pro, but IMAX with the same configuration have the same price, but the high end has the better video. Is he missing something? And there's a screenshot. We will put his tweet in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, look, when you play with a configurator, sometimes things don't make sense. Oh, well, Apple's, you know, not always perfect and we aren't always perfect. Let's move on. Well, that means the advice here is uh, if you're configuring a Mac, Try config, you know, you click on one of them and like pick three or whatever. Try the other one too and try to match the specs. It's worth doing once or twice just to make sure the prices aren't out of whack. Bingo. Uh, John, you had volunteered to cover this next piece. Oh, that's because you, you can't pronounce this Victor's last name. Well, I'm <laughs> not going to pronounce his last name. Guess true. what? Victor wrote in to tell us that uh, HomeKit <laughs> protocol spec what is now open to all devs. You can build a smart device using, how do you pronounce that? Arduino? Uh, Arduino, yeah, I believe that's right. <laughs> yeah, and control it via HomeKit without getting an MFI license. So this seems like, oh, great, Apple has opened up HomeKit, and now you don't have to go through all this onerous stuff to get HomeKit certified. Uh, but there's a twist, right? So this is for interoperability. People can build things that are compatible with HomeKit, uh, and you don't have to be an MFI made for iPhone. Is that still what it stands for? Or is this made for I iPod? Right. I don't know. It should be for made for iOS. Anyway, you don't have to get that that license. Um, and this is Apple's explanation. Say, at a user level, differences will include the process for onboarding an IP-based accessory to the network and a warning dialog in iOS that the user must acknowledge before continuing. So, yeah, you don't have to be certified as part of the program, and you can interoperate, right? Um, but you can't. You you won't have the Apple authentication coprocessor 
uh, or you and you won't have the Wi-Fi Alliance certification, and the user of your device will get a warning dialog. So it's not. It's great for hackers. It's like it's open up. Hey, if you want to mess with something and you can bypass these, that's kind of like when you right click open something on the, on the Mac. You know, power users can do it, but it doesn't suddenly make HomeKit a free for all for everybody. Uh, in practice, if you want to be part of the HomeKit ecosystem as a first class citizen, you still have to go through all the old stuff. But this is nice for people who just want to hack something together to get it working. The App Store guidelines have been updated to allow programming environments. And so we'll put a link in the show notes to this. Apps designed to teach, develop, or test executable code may, in limited circumstances, download code provided that such code is not used for other purposes. Such apps must make the source code provided by the application completely viewable and editable by the user. Not surprising, but nevertheless somewhat interesting. Yeah, they've been against, like, hey, no programming environments for such a long time. It's nice to see them turn the corner on this. Does this mean that Xcode for iOS is any closer? No. You know, it's the same distance it's always been, which I think is actually pretty close. Um, but it does mean that people trying to make programming components for iOS, uh, programming, programming environments for iOS, no longer have to deal with AverView just summarily rejecting them because they execute code from the internet or whatever. Uh, speaking of the App Store, reviews no longer reset on update, but may optionally do so. Did we not get to this last episode? I, I don't think so, but it's an exciting development everything. in App Store land. <laughs> yeah, short version is basically before when you submit a new update to an app, all your reviews would reset, you, and you'd have to click over to like the All Reviews tab. Now, there are no more two different tabs now, but there's only one set of reviews, and every time you submit a new version, you could now choose whether you want your reviews to reset. By default, they don't, which is good, so if you have like a really huge, buggy, horrible version of your app, and you get a whole bunch of one stars, and your next you know, update, you want to reset the the slate you can do that but by default you're going to get a whole bunch of reviews all mixed together from all previous versions and it'll be fine and you won't lose your ratings anymore awesome all right uh, additionally with the app store the review api this this is for developers to say hey why don't you go review my app or rate my app or blah 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 uh they had they had announced a new api somewhat recently it doesn't matter exactly when Tendry. but apparently Thank you. But apparently it is now mandatory. Quote, use, use the provided API to prompt users to review the, your app. This functionality allows customers to provide an app store rating and review without the inconvenience of leaving your app. And we will disallow custom review prompts. Yeah, the, the only thing here is like we don't know. It doesn't. They don't actually say when they are disallowing your own custom rate this app t- prompt. Um, and they also don't say how they're actually going to be enforcing this. Uh, and, and they're probably not going to ever say that. But, you know, there's been rules against using push notifications for promotional or marketing purposes since the beginning of push notifications. And yet, if you look at pretty much everybody's phone that isn't, you know, yours as a computer nerd and maybe even yours, um, almost everyone else's phone always has on the lock screen a notification from some mass market app that's like, hey, these things are now on sale. Come buy them now or something. Those are against the rules. They have always been against the rules, but Apple has never enforced it um, because it's a hard thing to enforce. Uh, So this is one of those things too, where like, are they actually going to find a way to enforce a ban on custom rate this app dialogues? Maybe, but it sounds like, you know, what are they going to do? Like have people using the app inside Apple and hitting the report button when an app does this? Because it's not going to do it during like the two minutes that they're reviewing it during app review. So I, this this sounds like something that it would be nice. I hope they can find a way to enforce this. But based on their rate of enforcement on spam push notifications, I'm not hopeful. Yep, no argument here. 
there's a question. Can we see iPad and Mac apps on iPhone in the iOS 11 app store? Probably not. If so, it's a bug. Who cares? Moving on. Uh, Trode Wenerborg writes, uh, previous keynotes, you've discussed Apple's efforts for equality on stage. It's even more important to do so when it's as bad as this year. Was it that bad? Did I miss something? I think it was pretty bad. Like, think, Can you think back to who you saw on stage during the keynote? Did you see anybody except for white guys? There were a couple of women, but it was. I think it was a worse ratio than usual. Yeah, and as we discussed in the past, like this is not the type of thing that you can easily solve in a year because it's not like you're going to fire all your senior executives and bring up other people. Like, I, what you want to happen is the people who are in charge of the things that are being announced, like you know, the people who are most responsible for them, get to get up there and show off their thing, and you would hope the people in charge of the important things at Apple have a reasonable ratio, uh, uh, you know, some, some kind of diversity that, uh, you know, that, that reflects the, the diversity that you want your company to have. At Apple's top executive ranks, the diversity is not that great. And so every time there is a product that is announced uh, for, you know, this is your department, come up and talk about it. Guess what? It's another, you know, gray-haired white guy. Um and so, you know, it's good to mix in other people for other portions, like they brought up uh, some women to do demos, for example, or if you get third party people up there, I mean, they're faced with the same problem because who knows who's running those third party uh, companies as well. But uh, it's it's a thing that I'm sure Apple is watching. And uh, and I think, you know, we should at least be, continue to be cognizant of it as well. I, you know, I, don't, I don't know what the solution is other than to for Apple to continue its efforts to hire and promote uh, all different kinds of people instead of making it an old boys club. I'm now I'm disappointed in myself because I, I usually am at least basically aware of, uh, in a broad strokes, how good or bad it was, and I, I really didn't think it was this. It was that bad this year, and I must be wrong. But I, I feel like I remember a handful of women up there. Um, certainly not in the executive roles, but nevertheless. So that's that's a one demerit for me, apparently. Well, I mean, uh, it's, not, it's like that thing where they say, like, uh, you know. Pr- People's perception. What was the 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 one with uh, people talking? Uh, if you're in a meeting and you ask the men in the meeting uh, what percentage of the time were women talking, what percentage of the time were men were talking, the men will say it was about fifty fifty. When in reality, it was like fifteen percent the women were talking, right? And eighty five percent of the men were talking. That seems like fifty fifty to men. I forget what the exact numbers, but it was some absurd amount that men perceive it to be equal when women get a fraction of the time. And if women even start to approach like a quarter of the time or a half of the time, then men perceive it as the women talking all the time and, and men don't get a chance at all. It's just, and it's just what you're used to, right? It's, you know, so if you're used to seeing a keynote, which is literally three well-known white guys who we see every single year, and there's one woman, you're, you're like, wow, it was 50% women this time. And really it was like one woman out of, out of three other white guys. So that's, you know, that's just something that to be aware of in terms of, cognitive biases that it, it, it all depends on what you're used to and where you're coming from so the perception that it was not that bad and was you know it seemed like it was pretty even is just based on what you're used to seeing and if it was different than what you're used to we are sponsored this week by squarespace start building your website at squarespace.com and enter offer code atp at checkout to get 10 percent off make your next move with a unique domain and a beautiful website from squarespace 
Almost everything you do these days needs a website, and there are so many ways to make websites that are just tons of work. Lots of busy work, installing software on servers or configuring complicated control panels and having to keep your updates installed and deal with spam and security updates and everything. And Squarespace gets rid of all of that. With Squarespace, you just log into their site. They have a beautiful, easy-to-use control panel. No matter what your skill level is, you can use it. It goes from beginner to advanced. Whatever your skill level, Squarespace can accommodate your needs and your preferences. And you can make incredible sites with Squarespace, from simple things like a simple like you know one pager or a few like info pages for a business or a store, all the way down you know of course blogs and portfolios and everything. And you can even run online stores if you want to sell things right on your website, digital or physical goods squarespace can accommodate that too it can even host podcasts our site is hosted on squarespace you can do so much with squarespace any site you need to make chances are they will do it for you and it's so much less effort and cost than pretty much anywhere else that you could try to host a site it's pretty great i suggest you check it out anytime you need to make a website try it there first see how far you get I bet you'll be able to do everything you need there, and you'll be done in like an hour. It's really quite something. So check it out today. You can get a free trial with no credit card required. You can just start building your site without ever putting in a credit card just to see how it works for you. And when you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code ATP to get 10% off your first purchase. Once again, start a free trial today, and if you sign up for a year up front, you can get a free domain name along with your purchase. Once again, code ATP to get 10% off your first purchase, Squarespace, Make your next move. Are we done with follow-up? See it? See how we're able to do it? Even with the middle part where Casey's trying to speed run through it and I had to scold him? Even with that, <laughs> still God. got through it pretty quickly. I'm so sorry, Dad. So, Casey, mm-hmm. you have a new Mac in your family. I do. It's a, new, it's a baby Mac. You got a baby Mac in your family. Congratulations. It, it is an adorable baby Mac, isn't it? Uh, yes. I uh, think I spoke about at the live show that we just mentioned that uh, I had placed an order for a MacBook Adorable for those who are not aware of the lingo, which, by the way, was it you or Gray that coined MacBook Adorable? I Gray. I say it was Gray. I, okay. I call it the MacBook One. Um, and That's I've, right. I've even, okay. yeah, mm-hmm. I've mostly stopped doing that recently because I feel like now it's been long enough that I can you can just say it's the 12-inch MacBook now. So that's I usually just call it the 12-inch MacBook now. Um, but CGP Grey on Hello Internet, or was it Cortex? I forget on which It might show. have been Cortex. Um, yeah, I think it was Harvey Cortex. Anyway, uh, on Cortex, uh, Grey was the one who coined the term MacBook Adorable. Um, and then, you know, Mike and you stole it. I don't think anyone else calls it that among our podcaster friends, but yeah. Regardless, uh, the 12-inch MacBook slash MacBook Adorable slash MacBook One. Indeed. So uh, when Apple announced that they had refreshed them at the WWDC keynote, which was mildly surprising to me. I know a lot of people had said, oh, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, but I I, I wasn't so sure. <laughs> at this point, every time Apple refreshes a Mac, it's mildly surprising. <laughs> yeah, that's actually pretty accurate, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so uh, within hours, I had placed an order for my MacBook Adorable. Uh, It arrived Thursday of last week, so the day after we recorded. I don't recall when the episode went out, but it it arrived after we recorded. And I have been using it on and off uh, for the last, you know, four days, whatever it is we're recording on the following Monday. And um, I have to say so far, I freaking love this thing because imagine how amazing it would be to have a computer the size or a device the size of an iPad, but it's a computer. 
so it can do anything. <laughs> oh, oh no, you're going to hear it's about not that. A, it's not a toy. It's oh, not no. a thing. Oh, it's, it, there's no there's no ball and chain involved, asterisk. There's no ball and chain there. It's a full-on computer that can do, prepare yourselves, computery things. Amazing. You know what I did just a few minutes ago? I transcoded something on FFmpeg. Did you hear it? No. Why? Because it was slower than dirt, but also because there's no fans. <laughs> because there's no fans on this device. Are you sure it's done but, yet? Uh, no, it, it is done. It, it took forever. It was running at like one half X, whereas uh, oh, I think my MacBook Pro would do it at like one and a half X. And I haven't done this on my iMac in a long time. But um, but anyway, uh, I, all kidding aside, I, I do love this thing. It is not without problems, but I do love it. Um, it is unbelievably light. And I picked up Aaron's MacBook Air, which is several years old now. But I mean, obviously, the, nothing has changed on the MacBook Air except that megahertz boost that it got. Um, so her MacBook Air is a aircraft carrier by comparison. It is mammoth by comparison. It <laughs> weighs a ton. And in fact, just the other, just uh, this morning, I was carrying my beloved iPad mini, which is also ancient and also effectively brand new. Funny how that works. Um, and I was carrying my iPad mini and my MacBook adorable. And it occurred to me based on no facts, based on just what it felt like in my hand, it felt like my third generation iPad, you know, the one that John and I both had that we both loved. That was the, um, that was the, the first of the retina iPads, which kind of weighed a ton, kind of overheated a lot. The combination of my MacBook adorable and my iPad felt like roughly the same weight as the full size iPad from a few years ago. Uh, the keyboard, there are pluses and minuses. Overall, I would say I like it. I absolutely do not love it like I do the Magic Keyboard. If it had 20 to 30% more travel, I think I would start moving toward love. And it's hard to describe because it's a weird um it's a weird turn of phrase, but it feels more stable this keyboard than perhaps even my beloved Magic Keyboard. Like the the keys just don't move laterally in the way that certainly my MacBook Pro does. My MacBook Pro is effectively unusable, that keyboard right now, because between the Magic Keyboard and this keyboard, <laughs> the MacBook Pro is like, it's like typing on, it, it, you know, the MacBook Pro keyboards, not the, the not the new fancy pants ones, I'm talking about before the scissor switches. The MacBook Pro keyboards Butterfly are the switches. Lexuses of keyboards. They are the marshmallows <laughs> of keyboards. It's like typing on pillows. And I don't mean that in the like, ah, comfortable way. I mean that in the, ugh, God, this feels gross way. I like those keyboard pillows. They're comfortable oh, to type on. God. You can feel where the keys. Them. And you know, you can feel where the arrow keys are without looking or missing the... Oh, God, I don't know. No, I, I... So, first of all, I think it's hilarious how many people have yelled at me for complaining about the new keyboard so much when even the fan... It, basically, if you're a fan of the new keyboard, you will tend to complain that much about the old one. So either mm, way, mm-hmm. it's like because the new keyboard is so different from the old ones. If you like the new one, you're going to complain about the old one and vice versa. I think that's mostly true. However, I only dislike the old one in retrospect 
because at the time <laughs> right. I thought it was a perfectly fine keyboard. It's just now I've seen the light and now I don't ever want to type on that mushy, marshmallowy, disgusting mess ever again. Um, but no, I do love this MacBook adorable. Uh, I don't feel generally speaking that it's particularly slow. I have done a little bit of Xcode on it. I've done some basically, you know, some basic computing tasks. And, and to be fair, this thing is never really intended to be a powerhouse, right? It's intended to be a travel computer. It's intended to be an around the house computer. It's an intended to be basically a, I don't want to use my work computer or I don't want to be sitting in my in-home office computer computer so it's for anywhere that's not either my actual office or the office in my house everywhere else i would be using this uh i do still use my ipad from time to time and for better or worse as much as i snark like i i absolutely believe that you can get work done on an ipad for me as i've said before and i was joking earlier but for me every time i use an ipad to do work and define work however you would like for the sorts of work that i do I either can't do it on an iPad because there is no Xcode on an iPad or it's it would be considerably more difficult because something like transcoding a video in FFmpeg, which I do way more often than any normal human should, I would have to, you know, remote into my iMac and do it that way. And my, my the particular iPad I have doesn't have a keyboard attached to it. Um, and so for me, anytime I try to accomplish anything on the iPad, it genuinely feels like I have a ball and chain attached to me. I'm not saying that's true for you, Mike. It's okay. You don't have to yell at me. But for for me, that is true. And so having an actual friggin' computer that can do anything that's as light and portable as an iPad, in my personal opinion, is amazing. And I love this thing. The one thing I'm not sure I love is the one part of the MacBook One. <laughs> because by and large, I actually don't mind having only one port. I mean, I'm pouring one out for MagSafe because, man, do I love MagSafe. But generally, I don't really mind having one port. I've gotten uh, two or three, I think, three dongles. I have a, um, I think it's Anchor. We'll put links in the show notes. It's an, it's, I believe it's an Anchor uh, uh, device that has three traditional USB. What is that, USB-A? I always get yep. it wrong. Um, yep. Thank you. Three USB-A ports and a gigabit Ethernet jack or port connector, whatever, uh, interface on it, but it does not have pass through power. And that's a bummer. So as an example, when I wanted to do my initial time machine backup, I had to make sure that this damn thing was topped up because otherwise I wasn't going to make it. <laughs> and there's like not that much data on this thing to begin with. So that's uncomfortable. And that's something I've never had to worry about before. And that's kind of frustrating. Um, if this particular device, if this particular Ethernet uh, adapter had passed through power, that would go away. I got a SD card reader. I don't often take pictures off my camera. I almost never do it on the road, but I want to have the ability to do so. I don't lament the fact that there's not an SD card slot on the device. Would I like it? Of course. Yeah. How much do you pay I, for that card reader? 30 bucks? 12, I think, from Monoprice, and I've already used it, and it works. Um, it was very, very cheap. Um, would I prefer it to be on the on the computer? Of course. But am I bitter about it not being? No. It's very small. It was like 12 or $13. Again, I'll put a link in the show notes, and it seems to work just fine. Yeah, just add it to your dongle bag that we all have to carry now. 
and that's the thing. Like, yes, in, in I do have to have a dongle bag. The other thing I got was a uh, HDMI adapter, which does have pass-through power. And this particular one also has a single USB-A port on it. So that's probably going to be my general purpose adapter because it has pass-through power, it has USB-A, and it has HDMI. So it has any of the things I would typically want to have while having pass-through power. The only thing it doesn't have is Ethernet. So I guess maybe in retrospect, I should have gotten a a USB-A Ethernet adapter, but presumably it would have been speed-limited, whatever. It doesn't matter. But uh, to your point, I have yet to order, but plan to order a, a small little, I forget the name of it, but a Tom Bin bag that I can put all of these little dongles in and have my USB-C dongle bag. There's not that many of them. I don't feel like I need any more, but I needed them. Well, need yeah, is relevant, in, right? in the name like, of portability, you now need a dongle bag. I, I have one too, and for the same reason, because like I use these new computers now when when traveling, and well, you just kind of need that. I mean, the one thing. So before before I, I make you continue and tell me all about how more stuff about this, I do want to interject one brief thing mm-hmm. here, and that mm-hmm. is that even even that I've been using the MacBook Escape as my computer for this role, the MacBook Escape has only two ports. And I have found that to be incredibly inconvenient more often than I expected. And so to, so? to go from two – well, so for example, during our live stream, the, the MacBook Escape was, was my computer that I was – it was doing the live broadcast. Um, it was uh, playing sound effects uh, into, this, into the PA system for like our you know, ad bumpers and stuff. And, uh, and it was you know, a backup recorder and everything else. Anyway, so I, so I was using it uh, because we were in like a room full of – laptops and nerds i didn't want to rely on wi-fi so i had an ethernet connection for the live stream internet connection so that's ethernet takes up one of the dongle or one of the spots the audio interface because there's no more audio line in functionality in any in any mac except for the mac mini anymore i don't know why except just to save money i guess i I, line in used to come on every computer i don't know why apple decided nobody needs line anymore because it's really cheap to add it's really cheap to be there. It doesn't take up a lot of space. It's just it's just another headphone jack. It's there's room for that. Why isn't there room for a line in? But whatever the reason, Apple decides that computers don't need line in jacks anymore. Um, so you need an entire audio interface or USB sound card or something if you want a line in on a computer. Um, so anyway, Ethernet in one port, line in uh, audio interface on the other port. That's it. And I also wanted power. So and what, so, <laughs> I have a few options here. I can get some kind of dongle. And I actually bought the Apple dongle that is the the expensive like $70 one that that has the one HDMI port, one USB-A port and a charging pass through. That that's basically what I have but but a but a cheap knockoff. Right. And the reason I, I bought the Apple one is because I was using this in production, like in a live show with a thousand people in the sure, room. Sure. I did not want any part of that thing to fail. The other problem is that that's a USB-A port on there. And so one thing, one thing that's very interesting, as I've found as I'm trying to convert to a USB-C lifestyle as much as I can, just for my own convenience when traveling, trying to make, get as much USB stuff as possible. And actually, um, listener uh, Remy wrote in. I'm not sure. It, he didn't say whether we can use his last name, so I'm not going to. Um, but listener Remy wrote in a few days ago, basically pointing out this, this problem in the USB-C ecosystem right now, that as far as he could tell, and I, and I agree, as far as I can tell, is anybody making hubs that convert a USB-C port to more USB-C ports? 
Yeah, that was a very interesting point. And I'm sure that there is one somewhere, or maybe there's many, but I certainly have not stumbled across one. Yeah, neither have I. And, like, and actually, the LG 5K monitor is one such thing, but I, I, I'm not aware of any standalone hubs that like you, you convert one USB-C port to like four USB-C ports. Like I've never, I have not seen that. One of the problems with the USB-C lifestyle is what I was facing with this Apple dongle, which is like, okay, so I have a USB-C cable for my sound interface, and I have a USB-C Ethernet adapter, and I have a USB-C power adapter. The Apple dongle thing only converts one-to-one on C. So it has an A port, but then I, then I need to have an A Ethernet adapter, which I don't have. I haven't had it since the MacBook Air. I can move the sound card to that, but I wasn't sure I wanted something as critical as the sound card to be going through a dongle with a weird little mini hub in it. So the USB-C ecosystem is, is actually kind of hard to fully adopt right now because you can't, generally, as far as we can tell, you can't multiply USB-C ports. You might think, oh, good, my computer has two or four, or in your case, one USB-C port, but that also <laughs> replaces the power port. So, <laughs> yep. so, like, that, well, if you actually want to be plugged into power, you just lost a port, which might be your only one, or at least so now you're down from two to one. So, like, if you've been, if you've been accustomed to most Apple laptops for the last many years have generally had two USB ports on them. And you could be plugged into power and also have two USB things plugged in. Well, now you're down to, on the MacBook 1, you're down to zero. On the MacBook Escape, you have one if you're plugged in. Um, and so, like, it's... It, and, and if you actually try... If you actually spend the lots of money on one of the Apple dongles or the less money but still money on one of the third-party ones, that, by the way, if you look at Amazon reviews for third-party USB-C hubs and dongles and things the reviews are all over the map and most of them seem like they're at best inconsistent, maybe unreliable. They they have a lot of problems, it seems. And they're probably all using this, you know, one of a very small number of chipsets and things and maybe those are the problems. Who knows what the problem is? But regardless, it's a problem. Like, if if you want to reliably multiply these ports, it's really hard to do that. So that's that's a big problem. Um, and and you're, now that you're in this ecosystem, you're going to find that as well. Anyway, so what I ended up doing for our live show, I just ran on battery power the whole time, which is a terrible solution. And the MacBook Escape, which has amazing battery power when you're not doing much, goes, for, goes from, you know, 12 hours battery life when you're, like, casually browsing Safari to, if you're actually, like, running stuff off of it, it goes to about three hours of battery life. And that's not great <laughs> when you're running a, a podcast like this one live. so indeed it was like it, it, you know so i was basically juggling like before the show i would like you know unplug the sound card and plug in power for a while and then right before we started like you know yank that out and like switch over but then, then you can't test things it it was it was actually really incredibly inconvenient and that was that was one of the first times besides when my keyboard stopped working uh that was <laughs> one of the first times uh when i actually did regret having the escape um, because having only two ports is incredibly inconvenient. And, and this is not the first time that this has been inconvenient for me. Um, but having one port, I, I imagine, for you is is even worse. Yeah, it is and it isn't. I think if this was my only computer, it would get really ugly really quickly, and I would probably have some sort of ridiculous dock. But again, the whole point of this machine is to be 
super portable. And so um, what I ended up with was $80 worth of dongles and cables. So <laughs> there the you lightning, go. So the Lightning, I, I didn't mention previously, but I got a Lightning USB-C uh, cable off Amazon. Again, a knockoff. That was 8 bucks. The HDMI adapter, which is basically the same thing that, that Apple sells, except a knockoff from, from Monoprice, that was 30 bucks. Uh, the SD card reader was twelve dollars, and the Ethernet thing was thirty dollars, and so that's a total of eighty bucks, roughly. I'll have links in the show notes. All of these seem to work fine. They're not terribly large. They seem to work okay. Uh, if this was my only computer, I'd be really grumpy and bitter. But since it's not, and since I'm not going to be doing terribly challenging, difficult tasks on it for the most part, it's it's really not bad at all. And I, I can see where USB-C will be pretty cool. And the reason I can see that is I wanted to try out my HDMI cable. And so I brought the, the MacBook Adorable downstairs. I hooked up an HDMI cable to the TV, hooked up that cable to the dongle, hooked up the dongle to the MacBook. And then I thought to myself, I wonder if I can power this all at the same time just to see. Because I, I thought for a minute I would like maybe watch a movie off of it just to see if it would work. And it occurred to me, wait a second, my Switch dock is right here, as is my Pro Controller charging cable. I wonder if, and sure enough, (laughs) it wasn't actively charging the MacBook, but it was at least slightly keeping it afloat by taking the charging cable for the Pro Controller on the Switch, which I believe is USB-A, to USB-C. So it comes out of the switch as USB-A, goes into the Pro Controller, or in my case, the MacBook, as USB-C, and it seemed to work. And I'm sure over hours it would eventually drain my battery, but it was very wild that that was an acceptable way of doing things. And additionally, I was talking to Underscore, uh, who has one of these as his travel computer, as far as I'm aware anyway. And he was saying that what you can do is you can issue the, the actual charging brick that came with it, which, by the way, to my eyes, looks barely any bigger than the you, the um, the iPad charging brick that's been the iPad charging brick forever. I understand that there's one that works with the iPad, blah, 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 or it's the same one with the right cable that works with the iPad, but this thing, the charging brick is comically small. Well, anyways, uh, what Underscore was saying was, just use like one of your Anchor or whatever uh, USB-A like hubs that does nothing but charge. Just let the thing run, sit overnight, suspended, charging, and it'll be just fine. It'll be topped up by the morning. And I don't know if I necessarily need to go to that route, but the, th- but the fact that that's an option, that's super cool. So I can see how this USB-C lifestyle could be awesome, but it's definitely not 100% awesome yet. <laughs> I don't know. Now, John, you haven't gotten your new computer for work yet, right? No, they, they notified me about it. They said, hey, we're going to buy the new ones. Guess what? And then they started giving me flack about wanting a one terabyte drive because it costs a bazillion dollars from Apple. So we're, we're working on it. <laughs> why do you need a one terabyte drive for work i got a lot of virtual machines they asked me the same question why do you need such yeah, a big drive sure. you have unlimited space on microsoft one drive or blah 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 it's like you don't want to run a virtual machine off of there why do you have so many virtual machines well because i do we're doing local development and you're doing it on a mac <laughs> and docker runs in a virtual machine and i have virtual machines for other kinds of flavors of linux and it's just the way it is so you sound just like them. Why do you need all this stuff? It's like, this is what I got. As just, soon as you said VM, the conversation was over for yeah. me. And it's not, it's not, yeah, it's not just one VM. And like, try to convince them that you can't run a VM off like OneDrive or Google Drive. I mean, you could, <laughs> but it'll just be painful. So we'll see how that goes. But well, and also like one of the big reasons is like you can never upgrade it. 
Like that's that's a, yeah, a exactly. like, yep. that is all the justification you need. Like if you are buying an Apple laptop or at most Macs today, actually, if you're buying a Mac today that does not have upgradable storage, uh, then the answer to why do you need the terabyte is literally like you can never upgrade this. So if you want this laptop to last however many years that you intend it to last, you have to really get as much storage as you can afford because that is one like barrier to just run into and that's like you can never change it. Well, at work they're never going to upgrade anything anyway. They don't they don't care and they're, they're, my my main pitch was like look the Mac I'm using right now is 8 years old. Come me a break here. I already saved the company a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, and I don't think I was specific by the way about what I ordered and uh, for the record I ordered the basically maxed out MacBook adorable because to build on what you were just saying the conclusion I've come to is when buying a Mac this may not be applicable to other manufacturers but when buying a Mac the order of operations is get as much RAM as you possibly can. That's step one. Step two is get as much disk space as you possibly can within your budget. And then step three, in my personal estimation, is get the biggest processor you possibly can given your budget. And I find that RAM makes the biggest difference, SSD, because of all the reasons Marco just gave you, and then finally CPU, because why not? And so I got a maxed out um, MacBook Adorable, and it was not cheap, but it can do anything I want it to do. Maybe not with the speed I want it to, because like I was saying, you know, the transcoding something in FFmpeg is not fast. But it is otherwise, to me, a no-compromise machine. And that's really awesome. The only thing that I think is slightly a compromise that, that does make me jealous of my iPad mini is I kind of want cellular in it. Yes. I don't need it. I don't need it. It's really no, kind of frivolous. No, you do need it. It's, it's like, kind of frivolous, but God, it would be so nice. No, it's not frivolous. It's 2017, for God's sake. Having cellular <laughs> and laptops, which PCs did like in 2005, like this is not this is not a ridiculous thing to ask for. Like this yeah. is something that a lot of people could use. Like like I you know I I've, I've been getting it on on iPads basically forever because it mm-hmm. really does make iPads way way more usable for people who does. are picky like me. And yes, I know tethering exists and tethering has gotten way better than it used to be. It's way easier than it used to be to use. Um but what to have cellular built in is way better. And like like now the data plans are even are cheaper than ever and like when you have like a combined family plan like it only costs me 10 bucks a month to have my iPad on my cellular plan. So, and it just uses the same shared pool of massive data that I have from AT&T for just another 10 bucks a month. And that's great. Like, so it's, to me, it's a no brainer on an iPad. And the second they release cellular laptops, if Apple ever does this, I will immediately trade in whatever laptop I have for a new one with cellular. Like that, that is how much I want that. Like it's, it is such a big thing. It's one of those things that unless you experience like having a Wi-Fi only iPad and then having a cellular iPad, which is the exact path I went through, I don't think you'll ever really understand how much more convenient it is. Yes, I understand tethering is a thing. Yes, I'm aware that you can turn on tethering from the other device if they're all on the same iCloud account, yada, yada, yada. I am aware that it is as easy as it can possibly be to make tethering against another device work. I get it. But that will never, ever be as convenient as having the connection on the device you're on. It just won't. If you're sitting there and you have a furrowed brow and you're like, what is he talking about? That's totally <laughs> No, I'm telling you, 
it's the way it is. Try it sometime. Yeah, it, it's it's like the different. It's like having having to like use a dial up API, like a dial up interface on your on your computer. Like, okay, connect to the tether. Now disconnect from the tether to save the battery on the tethering thing, or to make right. it stop burning data in the background in my backpack. Like, it's you you have to manage it. It's still something you have to manage. You have to do. You have to sometimes wait for, and you're still then draining the battery of your phone or having to plug it into one of your one USB ports. Like it's <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's not it. Everything about that is painful. That's another thing. I, that another reason I ran into um, with my laptop planning with the live show is that I, my backup option before I got to the venue, I was thinking. I might have to use tethering as the internet connection. And again, I'm not going to rely on wireless tethering in a room full of a thousand people with Apple devices. So I was going to use USB tethering Mm -hmm. and I had to bring lightning cables with both types of USB ends. So I could make sure that I'd be able to plug in with either the dongle or direct port. or something. It's just friction. It's just all these things. They just add friction. The USB transition is adding friction. The fact that it still isn't like, no matter how much money you're willing to spend on dongles and new cables right now, you still can't fully transition to USB-C. So you're still you're still going to be living in a mixed world for a long time, and it still sucks. And you, there's still these inconveniences, like how like okay, well now I my Ethernet adapter is USB-C, but now I can't plug it into USB-A port if I ever have to use a hub or something that only outputs USB-A. Like there's all these there's going to be these problems forever, right? Tethering versus built-in cellular is like a it's similar it's like it's just friction it's more friction and when there's friction you use things less or it it gets in the way or sometimes it doesn't work like you know think like when it's built in it'll work every time when it's not built in when you're tethering like occasionally it won't work and that will be annoying or a problem for you like having it built in is just so much nicer yep i completely agree does your escape have thunderbolt yes you're you're looking to thunderbolt hubs to try to solve your because i know usb C hubs multipliers apparently aren't out there. Tipster hasn't delivered his promised one, but uh, oh, like a Thunderbolt <laughs> hub that gives you Ethernet and a bunch of USB ports and audio in and all the stuff. You looked into that? You know, I haven't yet. Maybe I should. Um, I'm not sure any of those Thunderbolt hubs ever really were adopted by enough people to even know whether they suck or not. I I, I would be hesitant to also invest in any kind of thunderbolt 2 gear right now and thunderbolt 3 gear is probably still too young or not even out yet you know depending so well and i can't I use know. it either because if i understand right. you this, don't have thunderbolt this, <laughs> right exactly if i understand this whole kerfuffle correctly i don't have thunderbolt that i can get to externally so so uh, it, for me that's useless i'm stuck with just straight USB-C, and i'm not saying obviously that that's true for everyone but for me it's USB-C or bust and and yeah, I mean, so far, I really love this thing. I'm traveling with it very, very soon, so we'll see what I think of it then. Um, part of the draw of getting such a small computer was on the plane back from DubDub, the person in front of me decided to recline, and <laughs> I have very strong opinions about jerks, uh, people who recline their seats in planes. And, agreed. And when this person reclined their seat... I, I there was no way for me to use my laptop except perhaps reclining, but I'm a gentleman, so I wouldn't do that. There was no way to use my 15-inch laptop without giving myself horrible pain somewhere on my body. And <laughs> as silly as it sounds, that two or three inches that that person infringed upon what is my space, damn it, uh, that made the difference between me being able to use my computer and me not. Whereas this thing, I mean, it's it's almost an iPad. I could pretty much use it anywhere. And 
And I just, I really, really love it. I, I'm super happy with it. The space gray is so darn good looking. I don't know why anyone would buy any other color. Um, I, I love this thing. It definitely does have some problems here and there. It has some catches. It has some some issues. Most notably, I do think even just one more USB-C port would make a world of difference. But generally speaking, for the purpose I'm trying to, to for the purpose this, this laptop exists in my world, which is to be an accessory, to, to be either a portable machine to do something, to do everything in a pinch, or to just be an accessory so it doesn't have to do everything at all. It is pretty much perfect, and I am overjoyed with it. Now, ask me again once I start getting some real time with uh, with one of the bigger iPads on iOS 11, and maybe I'm going to start having some buyer's remorse because this new this new stuff in iOS 11 does look darn good. But I don't think that will ever really change the fact that this computer can do everything I want it to do. Maybe not the speed at which I want it to do. Maybe not without a few dongles that I wish I didn't have to carry. But it can do literally everything I want it to do. Whereas an iPad, for me, either can't or can't do it without having a Mac nearby or having a keyboard nearby or about without having any number of other things that to support it. And while I deeply respect the Mikes and the Federicos and the Ben Brookses of the world who can figure out a way to make this technology work for them, for me, if I have to write a workflow, which again is one of the most mind-blowingly amazing apps written by unbelievably great, great people, if I have to write a, a workflow in order to get this device to do what I want it to do, then to me, that it's already failed because I have to bend the device to my will. Whereas this computer, this tiny, adorable, darling little computer of mine can do everything right off the bat. And that's what's important to me. You know, I sell uh, ski racks for the top of cars. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, they should sell that for uh, MacBooks. Like it would just be like a ski rack for your, for your MacBook and you just <laughs> you, you click on all your dongles, right? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> so, so I, I think that would really hammer home the point that Marco was getting at before, which is like, you buy these computers that are super slim because portability is paramount, right? But then everybody needs to bring some other thing with them to make the computer usable for them, and that some other thing compromises portability so much more than an extra millimeter would on mm -hmm. the thing. Now, I suppose if you never need to bring anything, then you win the portability. Like, yes, thank, thank God it's portable and, and smaller and light. But if you have to bring a single dongle, then it's like game over. And having an actual rack attached to the back of them would be a nice way to communicate to Apple, like, if that ever became a popular product. Like, look, you made this thing portable, but then we put a, had to put a ski rack on it. Thanks a lot. Yeah, and that's, and that's the thing. Like, when, whenever Apple removes a port, we hear from people who say things like, well, you know, you never use that anyway. Like, you know, uh, uh, just now, I was uh, uh, 20 minutes ago, I was ranting about how no Macs have line-in ports anymore, except the Mac Mini. The the reasoning behind that, that almost any Apple fan would come up with in two seconds, because it isn't that hard to come up with this reason, is, well, most people don't use that. I have one. I've never used it. Like, that's what everyone says. When, whenever Apple removes something that I like, <laughs> everyone else says, well, I, I've, I've never used that port. But, like, for everyone, that's different. So one thing that I would say about that with all my previous, you know, laptops is that I've never used the HDMI port. But a lot of people do use the HDMI port. And you know what? Even when I say I've never used the HDMI port, 
that's probably wrong. I've probably used it like once or twice. And during those once or twice times, I bet I was really glad I had it. And a line-in jack for audio, like this is one of those things where it's like, it isn't that hard to add. They they already have the entire like USB audio codec chip in these computers anyway. Like it, they, it would cost them almost nothing additional. And while most people don't usually use it, sometimes people use it. And during those times, it's really nice to have it. And I would say the same thing about so many other features. Like, I never use the front-facing camera on any of my things. But a lot of people do, so it's fine. I never use many of the capabilities. Most people don't use all of the capabilities of the computers and the computing devices they have. That does not mean that the correct design decision is to get rid of everything. Like, there's this obsession with getting rid of things, minimizing things, deleting things, erasing things. The reality is, like, these are general purpose devices, and the more they can do, the more useful they're going to be to people, the more they're going to help people, the more often they're going to be able to do what people need them to do with the, with the equipment they already have without buying another, a bunch of dongles and having them with you all the time. I really, I, I wish that Apple would have the courage, and I'm using this word deliberately here, have the courage to say yes sometimes. And to have the courage to say, you know what, even though most people don't use, say, the SD card slot, for the people that do, that's incredibly useful, and it's not really you know being a problem for us to keep it there, so let's keep it there. Or how about maybe if we're going to have a whole new line of computers that is reducing the number of ports it has down to almost nothing. How about we give people the most of that port that we possibly can? And maybe they are now. I don't know. I don't know the details about Thunderbolt bandwidth and stuff, but like I feel like Apple needs to step back a little bit from the obsession with removing things because it really does overall make these things less useful in times and people don't expect that or don't welcome that or we have to patch over over these wonderful, beautiful objects with things like dongle bags in our in our bags that now we have to carry these additional things and spend the eighty plus dollars on all these additional adapters that we didn't need before. Like with with the computers that we bought a few years ago, we didn't need a dongle to to do this common thing, and now we do. And is so have we really made progress? Like that sounds worse to me. There's there's nothing wrong with a computer having a capability that most of its customers don't use. If it's not costing you a lot to have it there, if it's not causing some kind of big problem, what's the big deal with having it there for the time when someone does need it and then they can be happily delighted that, oh, my computer can do this new thing that I need to do suddenly right now that I didn't, that I didn't predict or plan for or buy a dongle for ahead of time. What's so bad about that? I think the answer is it's... it's to get rid of them simplifies things. To get rid of them makes things smaller and thinner. And as much as I am 100% behind you on thinness being a bad thing for phones, like we, we could stand to have our phones get a little thicker. And you've been saying that for a long time, and I agree with you. In this case, though, I have to concede that this thing being as thin and light as it is 
is pretty nice. That's exactly why I bought it. So, well, yeah, and, and there's, I mean, there's you know differences here. Like, I'm not saying that the that the one super thin, super light computer in the lineup has to have a million ports on it because obviously that actually doesn't have the room for it. And mm. I, but I'm talking about like. You know, okay, I I got over them removing Ethernet a while ago because, well, Ethernet's really big, you know, so that makes sense. But like SD cards and audio jacks and stuff are pretty small. Like you and you like you can fit those in thin bodies. It's not a, it isn't a problem. Like that's a lot of these things seem to have been removed just because they thought people didn't use them enough anymore, or they were tired of shipping them or something. Like and okay, but you know, I I I really. It's it's hard it's hard to tell whether some of these things were removed for good reasons that benefit the customers or for reasons that only benefit Apple. Or that benefit nobody. We all know they just need to add a second USB port to the adorable and they need to add an SD card reader to the big giant <laughs> expensive fifteen inch and like and, and then maybe put four ports on the escape and we're all happy. Like it's not we're not asking for the moon here, you know. Again, you're not gonna put an Ethernet port on these things, but if you had four USB C on the escape you'd be able to get over a lot of the weird USB-C ecosystems. You'd be like, well, whatever, I'll get four dongles and plug them all in and, and have power, right? And on on the Escape, you know, it is super thin. You don't have room for much of anything. But, you know, how about a second second port? You know, maybe a third of you could fit on that. That's fine. And on the big, giant 15-inch that has everything in it, SD card plus five USB-C, who's going to complain about that? You'd probably still complain about the, the audio in being missing, although I think any analog input at this point is crazy, so it would have to be the optical one with the little, you know, little light at the end of the thing. Oh, they got rid of optical, too, and all the new MacBook Pros. They, they used to be the hybrid jack that uh, that yeah, has yeah. the optical out. They have also the iMacs getting rid of them, too, which is unfortunate because I use mine, but oh well. it's uh, they, I, I only pick certain battles. <laughs> yeah, I think they're saying that the, uh, you, you know, digital audio through usb is the way to go like i'm all like i said i'm all on board with the usb c is they are tiny just you please give us more of them or i suppose apple can come up with some kind of reliable hub because you're uh, you know i suggest the thunderbolt hub as a solution to your problem but you know it's not the type of thing you'd want to order a week before going to wwc and cross your fingers that the thing doesn't flake out because as we all know hubs are notoriously flaky and you know, exactly it, it would be nice if it would be nice if apple didn't leave this as a third-party opportunity for those things but so I, you know they're close like i think the lines are, are close on, on on you know their laptop lines are close on the things they're including and again like i said a, a couple shows ago I'm, I'm glad they put usba on the imac because it's not like there's not room for it back there plenty of room and boy isn't it convenient to not have even more dongles hanging off the back of your fancy new imac um and I, i'm still pinning my hopes on those statements that whoever it was said during the mac roundtable about the mac pro that they're thinking about, you know, MacBook Pros that address some of the customer's needs. The easy answer is, guess what? You already saw those. They announced them at WWC. How do you like them? But I'm still holding out hope. Like, <laughs> no, they they meant they're going to add SD card to the 15-inch, right? Right, yeah, Phil? Tell I me. Please. I wouldn't count on that. Oh, it, it could happen. It could so- we, oh, There's so much room for it there. Also, one thing I want to argue about your your Thunderbolt hub thing for a second here. So so people in the chat pasted this link to apparently Belkin did make a Thunderbolt 3 hub. Um, So first of all, it's $350. And this is not just the one time. Like almost every Thunderbolt hub that has ever existed that actually is Thunderbolt based and not just USB, they're almost all like $300 range like in in that ballpark. Uh, so, So it's like... Like so, the, the the reason this is not a solution, number one is that it's very expensive. <laughs> number, number two is that it adds all ports that aren't USB C ports. 
it adds USB A ports, you know, Ethernet and just you know Display Port, and then two Thunderbolt two ports. Well, who needs that? Like, if you're moving to this new ecosystem, you want Thunderbolt three devices that use USB C. So, like, and and on top of that, it needs its own giant power supply. And let me tell you, just as like a as like a, a, a geek wisdom thing, one of the, one of the biggest reasons why many like peripherals or you know things like peripherals why they often fail or suck is crappy or unreliable ac dc power supplies like it it basically if your thing is not bus powered if it is powered by its own external power brick not only does that make your desk and stuff messier but also it is way more likely to suck or fail because those power bricks are crap. They oh, they're always crap. And the 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 one thing you do not want is to rely on one of those power bricks or to introduce them into your setup and cause possible like, you know, noise or interference. They always suck. They're always cheap pieces of crap. And so anything you can do to avoid needing external power into a peripheral, you will be better off for it. But then also that also means that USB hubs, you know, are often either unpowered, which sucks, you, know, you plug in devices and it's not enough power, um or you know they they need these these things or they only have like two ports you know so it's like any of these hub solutions almost always suck the way to make the USB-C ecosystem not suck is to a have just have as many of these ports on the computers as you can fit and as the chipset can power and drive like step 1 try to avoid the need for hubs at all because what what the correct answer if you're arguing for the USB-C future slash now it's really the present. Um, if you're arguing for the USB-C world, you should be totally accommodating and it should be awesome for people who are willing to go out and buy USB-C everything. Like, look, you like Casey, you bought a new laptop, I bought my laptop. Like, I went out and I bought a USB-C Ethernet adapter and a USB-C SD card reader and USB-C lightning cables. And like, because I'm like, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to go all in. I'm going to get all USB-C stuff. But if you do that now, it still sucks because there's still no like USB-C port multiplier hubs out there, as we said earlier. So like you still have to live in this weird mixed world and you're dealing with all these unreliable hubs with crappy Amazon reviews that are made by no-name companies. And even the ones from good companies like Anchor have terrible reviews. And it's like, it, it just seems like this whole world of like of USB-C relies currently today on this ecosystem of crappy hubs that kind of ruin the whole thing Like once you go beyond the ports in your computer. And so what we need is for the computers to need fewer hubs, A, by having more ports, and B, we need good hubs. And I know this is like this is not an exciting topic, but like think about how long it took to find good USB three hubs, like just with USB A ports on them. It, I mean, it took I, I don't know if you guys have good ones. It took me like two years to find a good USB three hub that didn't flake out and like disconnect drives randomly that were plugged into it and stuff like that. Still today, USB three, which is now comparably ancient, very few hubs are good, but there are a few that exist. We need good USB-C hubs now. And we, as far as I can tell from the world out there, I don't think we have any that actually give you more USB-C ports, let alone good ones. And the ones that, that give you different ports, again, as I mentioned, they, they don't seem to be um, consistently good. And so if this world is going to happen, if this is going to actually take off, we need those two things. We need more ports in the laptops, and we need great hubs. And until that happens, it's going to be really a pain to have USB-C devices. And that's why I kind of feel like 
would it kill Apple to make a good hub? Like, I know it's the most boring Apple product in the world, but they make boring stuff sometimes, like all their little adapters and cables. Like, they make other boring <laughs> stuff. That would enable this. Like, if Apple just made, like, a, a decent, like, you know, one to four USB-C hub, that would be great. Like, because... I think we have seen the entire rest of the electronics world. They have shown us over the last like decade they can't do this. Like <laughs> they they cannot do this reliably. They, the entire consumer electronics industry is not capable of putting out reliable USB hubs. Like we're lucky if we can find one model of one sometimes that that works for a while. For God's sakes, Apple, just give us a USB hub. Like <laughs> that's all we need. ATP Tipster, you're our only hope. Thanks a lot to our three sponsors this week, Squarespace, Away, and Hover. And we will see you next week. Now the show is over. They didn't even mean to begin. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. John didn't do any research. Marco and Casey wouldn't let him. Because it was accidental. Oh, it was accidental. And you can find the show notes at atp.fm And if you're into Twitter, you can follow them At C-A-S-E-Y-L-I-S-S So that's Casey Liss, M-A-R-C-O-A-R-M-E-N-T Marco Arment, S-I-R-A-C USA Syracuse, it's accidental So we didn't actually complete follow-up yet. <laughs> of course we didn't. We, we have, have one. We, will we ever complete follow-up? Is it even a possible thing? If John has his way, the only way we complete follow-up is by ceasing to record the show anymore. In any case, we have one piece of follow-up that we did not cover, but is very important, and it is WWDC Breakfast. So Rich has written in and said... I had donuts at WWDC breakfast three out of five days this year. Maybe they were gone when you arrived, John. That shows that they're insufficient donuts. Because if they're gone when I arrived, (laughs) I feel like I was coming at the same time as I show up every year. And it's not, you know, the very first person in line, but I'm not super late either. You need to have enough donuts for everybody. I know that means it's a lot of donuts, but you got to do what you got to do. Fair enough. (laughs) <laughs> I uh, I would also like to thank our listeners. I have gotten a surprisingly small amount of flack about my completely embarrassing Philadelphia cream cheese incident, and I appreciate you guys taking pity on me. So thank you. Yeah, it is summer break, though, for a lot of people. I bet a lot of people haven't gotten to the episode yet. That's possible. Give them time. And speaking of getting flack, uh, we had one, one of us, one of the three of us, was very bitter a couple of days ago. And... One of the three of us had committed the ultimate ATP sin, which is not getting title case correct. Because I tell you, the audio could be totally garbage in an episode, and that would be less offensive to one of my co-hosts than the title case being incorrect. That is, that is not the case at all. I can mm-hmm. care about more than one thing at once. I like good audio quality. <laughs> I also like correct title case. Those two things. Get, and it was particularly frustrating because we discussed on the show, hey, <laughs> don't forget to use title case, which letters should be capital, just use the website. And then Marco decided, you know what? 
I don't like what the website said. I have different opinions about what title case should be. And he changed the title, and I see it in my feed with a capital F and four, and it just stabs my eyes like daggers. <laughs> <sighs> so anyway, I am blaming Marco for this. If you looked at the title of our show and said, boy, these guys don't know how to use title case. No, just Marco. Yep, it, it, I take full responsibility. I, I looked at the way it was capitalized, and I thought, that does not look right. <laughs> That's exactly how grammar works. You're right. You did it. <laughs> this word doesn't look like it's spelled right. I'm going to change it. First of all, spelling and stylistic capitalization are very different things. Um, secondly, there, there, are, there are many rules of both grammar and for things like style manuals uh, for publications. Many rules that, like, with permission you sometimes can break like if you know what you're doing and you you like you know you're breaking the rule but you decide like the rule is wrong here uh you can break them you've drifted from all right stylistic breaks and know what you're doing to just deciding that the rule is wrong and those are two different things i feel like one is like there's (laughs) there's competing belief systems that you understand the nuances of and you choose among them and the other is i don't know too much about this but that seems wrong to me it's so so for you know for listeners who who are not aware looking at the the, la- the list of episodes basically the last uh the title of the last episode was what, what was for suckers something was for suckers scrolling smooth, scroll. smooth scrolling is for suckers and titlecase.com the website that we've used that we agreed upon is our like title case capitalization authority um it it capitalizes in the phrase title case or smooth scrolling is for suckers it capitalizes the is and not the for, because for I guess I guess it, it, has, it probably just has a rule not to capitalize prepositions, but to always capitalize verbs. That's my guess, right? Um, so is is the verb, so you capitalize that, but then for you don't. And I thought having every single word capitalized in that and not the for looked wrong, like having the is capitalized and not the for. And I tried making both of them lowercase, but that looked that didn't look right either. Animated both of them capital, and that looked the least <laughs> wrong of all the things that we had. So, oh, but see, but the, the, the thing with style guides is you have agreed upon set of rules that you use, and you can change the style guide, but you can't say, for this instance, I'm going to ignore the style guide because why even have the style guide then, right? So, you know, it's like consistency. And and titlecase.com, I do not hold up as like it's not how I would capitalize it either. Like I, I would do it differently if I was title, you know. But this was just the tiebreaker. It's like to make Casey's life easy, so he doesn't have to guess, and we don't have to discuss it. Just go to this website, and the Thanks, website's going to do stuff that, that we don't agree with, but it's just consistent. Are you not able to deviate from the thing that you've decided is consistent if you think it's wrong? Well, but I think it's wrong too. I would do lowercase i and lowercase f. That's what I would have done. But I, I deferred to the website, and, and I would have settled for that. All I decided was that capital I lowercase f looked wrong. And either they should both be lowercase or they should both be capital. Anyway, I just wanted to assign blame. That's all. Oh, yeah. It's totally my fault. I, I overrode it. And, and, and I knew you would be mad. And I, I made a calculated risk. Like You think I wouldn't notice, which is... Which is uh, no, no, no. I knew you would notice. There, there was no <laughs> chance you were not going to notice. Uh, but I, 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 it was a calculated risk based on, like, I think John is relatively happy with me, you know, as much as he can be these days. Uh, I think I can probably get away with doing this maybe once a year. And this seems like a good time to do it because the way that the, the titlecase.com did this looks so bad to me. 
So I decided to spend, spend the rest of the year making your peace with TitleCase.com, as I have. Because, <laughs> again, it's not the way I would capitalize either. You have to make your peace with it. And Casey can spend the rest of the year working on his comma usage. I wonder if I could buy it and just change it. Oh, yeah. Where, where was there a, an aggressive amount of commas? And what, what did you have to repair? I didn't repair anything. I just left it as is. But, like, all right, so what do we got here <laughs> for aggressive commas? Amount of commas? You mean in the um, show notes? Yeah, and some... So for the listeners, so Casey usually writes all or almost all of the show notes. Yeah. John's ancient comma slow comma Mac Pro. Oh, yeah. There shouldn't be after slow. That should be gone. That, that's right. I don't know. I, I, I'm i not going <laughs> to argue that. It's, I, I stand by it still looks right to me sitting here today. No, you're ruining my argument. <laughs> uh, this, this is the new rule for English written languages. Does it look right to Marco or Casey? No, right. this is rule number <laughs> That That's is just wrong. <laughs> it's all right. No, no one reads the show notes anyway. It's fine. But a lot of people do read the title. So 